The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. I am so pleased today to have as my guest Jerry Kuntz. He is the author of Minnesota's Notorious Nellie King, Wild Woman of the Closed Frontier. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad to uh, talk with you. I'd never heard of Nellie King before your book, and it's such a great story from beginning to end. How did you learn about this character in the first place? Um, she has been mentioned uh, in a few obscure titles that talk about early examples of cross-dressing, because that was what she was mainly known for at, uh, at, um, when she first burst upon the scene in uh, Minnesota in uh, 1888. Now, I found her because I was looking for a, a new writing project, and I thought it would be interesting to research the first female detective. So I went searching through newspaper archives for the names of early female detectives, and uh, one name that uh, came across fairly early on was Nellie King. And it didn't take me too long uh, before I realized that she was uh, play acting as a uh, female detective, that she really was not. Um, but by that time, I realized that she was having many other escapades that were fascinating. If she had applied herself, she, she could have been a detective. She was so clever and resourceful. She She was resourceful, but also I think she had perhaps a diagnosable uh, psychological disorder. She had no impulse control at all. Um, whatever she felt like doing at the moment, she would do. And unfortunately, that she also fairly early on in her life turned towards substance abuse, alcohol and drugs. And of course, that just was fed by her lack of impulse control. Now, uh, before we get too far into this, and, and speaking of colorful, young turn-of-the-century women, Nellie Bly, Nellie King, Nellie Bly, Nellie King, <laughs> the names sound quite similar. They are not the same person. Yeah, uh, Nellie Bly, of course, was an investigative reporter, although uh, in her own day, she was identified as a female detective because Anyone that was going undercover was was labeled a detective. So, of course, I ran into Nellie Bly at the same time I was researching Nellie King. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm going blank. Uh, was Nellie Bly's book three months in a madhouse? Uh, ten days in a madhouse. Oh, ten days. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Uh, it wasn't ten days was enough for her. <laughs> so, how did you set about? to write this book. Where did you begin? Well, 
going through uh, various newspaper archives, and I, I have access to them because that's my profession. I'm a research librarian, so I have access to several different products that uh, have different uh, newspaper databases. So I was able to amass fairly quickly uh, a, a large file of all her misadventures in uh, Minnesota and the Dakotas. But it was infuriating because I could not identify her real identity. All I knew was that Nellie King was a, was a, a, a fake name, and I didn't know her real name, and I didn't know her background. And so I was stuck for a couple of years, actually, uh, not getting beyond uh, her adventures in Minnesota and in the Dakotas and not realizing where she came from or what her real name was. And this is one of the, the interesting things about being a con artist in the late 19th century. You could move pretty freely from state to state without fear of being tracked down. Yeah, there were no identification papers, no license, no licenses. Yeah, and she had so many aliases. Yes, <laughs> including uh, Della Carlos, I think, was uh, when she was pretending to be of uh, Mexican origin. And uh, Vic Loray, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but of all her names, she was best known as Nellie King. And most of the wild, outrageous press that she received happened when she lived in Minnesota. Yes. Uh, she says that she was married to a young man named John King, although it was probably just a sham marriage. And he actually um, knocked her down on the street uh, in one instance, uh, incident. And um, after that, she no longer associated with him. In the opening chapter of your book, she's calling herself a detective, right? Yeah, that's, those are the earliest clippings I could find about her is when she suddenly materialized on, on some of the farming community towns in, in North Dakota, uh, announcing that she was a female detective in search of a stolen racehorse from New York, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Not not a very logical story, but and she's kind of ripping across the prairie on a horse. Can can you describe what she looked like? Uh, how she's dressed? At that time, she was wearing men's clothing, trousers, uh, which was a taboo for women at that time, and a hat that was covering her hair, and a duster. And so she looked like a cowboy when she was riding into town. And she was carrying a pistol. Yeah. Uh, carrying a revolver, yeah. But then when she dismounted and went up to people to talk about this missing horse, she didn't hide the fact that she was a woman. No, no. She took off her hat and, and, and her, of course, her hair came, came uh, down and... Um, actually, the, all the towns where she visited, the men were quite taken with her because she had uh, a very attractive appearance. Yeah. And at a certain point on this little adventure, things turn south for her. Well, she went from town to town and with the story that she was a female detective in search of a horse, but she spent... None of her time doing any detective work. She spent it carousing in the saloons and gathering places in the towns, um, <laughs> <laughs> as was her wont, and regaling them with stories and singing songs. And she had a beautiful singing voice. She uh, Apparently, she had a beautiful singing voice. And she probably used that to make her way through the world for a couple of years, either singing in saloons or, in one case, I suspect, in a bordello. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I do want to ask you about that later on. Um, can you tell us about the badge she was carrying and the detective agency she was representing? Well, um, as she went from town to town, she said she was representing the Northwestern Detective Agency. 
and in another case, she said she was representing the Kingsford Detective Agency, which there is no evidence ever existed. The Northwestern Detective Agency seems to be sort of a scam operation. It, it did exist, but it mainly existed for selling badges to gullible young men to convince them that they could become detectives. And this has been a scam up until recent years. I mean, I remember seeing ads in the classifieds in the 90s. Um, you want to be a real detective? Uh, just give us a call. <laughs> well, n most states now, and in fact, I'm not sure, that it's probably every state now licenses uh, private detective companies. So they, they have to be licensed now, but of course that was not true back then. And anyone could call themselves a detective. Anyone could call themselves with a detective and manufacture badges and be able to display those badges as if they were some sort of law authority. And as you point out in your book, there were many different kinds of detectives back then. Railroad detectives. Hotel detectives. As you said, railroad detectives. There were newspaper detectives. Yeah, there were divorce detectives. Yeah, it was quite a racket uh, in, in a day and age where there were no identifying papers. Uh, if you wanted to try and track someone down, there was no centralized database. You were on your own. No, there was no federal authority. The uh, United States Marshals were limited to acting upon orders issued by federal courts. So they weren't really a, a national uh, investigative agency. The FBI, of course, didn't come into being until the, the 20th century. So um, really the only uh, institution that existed back then was the a legitimate detective agency, the Pinkertons. Right, right. And there are many competitors, I would imagine. Yeah, and there were legitimate competitors, yes. Like Mike Hoy, Mike Hoy and his son. Yes, uh, Big Mike Hoy, yeah. yes. Uh, ran a detective agency in uh, Minneapolis. He was actually the first police detective in Minneapolis history. Wow. Yeah. We talked a bit about this before the interview started. Um, I actually write about him a little bit in my Dirty Doc Ames book. His nickname was um, the Terror to Evildoers, and he had a reputation of being a smart but very brutal detective. And he was rumored to personally know the closet skeletons of every prominent family in the city, and evidently he used that to his advantage. I'm surprised I didn't run into his name more often. He was one of the, the Minneapolis delegation who traveled down to southern Minnesota after the botched Northfield bank raid by the James Younger gang. Mm -hmm. And he almost flushed out the Younger brothers, but he failed and kind of sheepishly made his way back home. And when a, a fellow passenger on the train uh, taunted him, kind of, for not catching Jesse James, uh, Hoy punched the guy in his jaw and, and, and broke it, I believe. <laughs> I mean, he had a temper. <laughs> uh, but let's get back to the the Nellie King story. Can you tell us about the guy behind this detective agency, uh, the guy who whom she later confronts? Uh, I suspect that uh, the person behind it was a man named Eugene Bassett, um, who was running a detective agency in uh, Minneapolis um, at the time. It was neither, it was, wasn't called uh, the Northwestern or the Kingsford. Uh, I don't recall the name of it. But I, uh, he was also running his detective agency as a scam, not only selling badges to impressionable young men, but also uh, arranging for horse teams to be stolen um, so that he could go and recover them for the owner, uh, which is what I suspect what uh, Nellie was really up to when she was going to, uh, to the Dakotas. And he kind of badmouths her in the press, doesn't he? Yes, I think that he was badmouthing her because um, she had not followed the directions that he had specified, or that he had actually assigned 
uh, this task to a young man and that Nellie accompanied the young man and then sort of took over the task and uh, made it into her own and made it into it, um, painting the town red from town to town in, in the Dakotas. And probably brought unwanted attention to him and his scam. Yes. Yeah, I suspect that is what the real story was. And so uh, when Nellie came back from the Dakotas, after being sent back by uh, one of the sheriffs there, um, the first thing she did when she arrived back in Minneapolis was she walked into Eugene Bassett's detective agency, where he was sitting at his desk and pointed a gun at his head. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and asked him to take back the things that he had said about her. <laughs> uh, so once this encounter happens, um, Nellie suddenly has a spotlight on her in the Twin Cities, and papers must have figured that they had fire here, uh, they had gold, and eager readers wanting to hear more about her exploits. Yes, well, the newspapers thought that she was just an uh, out-of-control young woman, uh, going from one misadventure to another. And, of course, uh, Mr. Bassett thought that uh, he uh, that she was bad for his business and was not happy that he had had a gun drawn on him. So um, she uh, was actually living in fear for, for a few weeks afterwards, thinking that um, some of his henchmen uh, were following her. And she even went to the police, right? She well, she went over to St. Paul and went to the police, uh, and of course they they did nothing. So eventually, um, I think she left town for a little bit and went up to Duluth. Yeah, yeah, and there is this interesting interview conducted by a local reporter with her. Um, you you repeat in your book, just before she leaves Minneapolis, she she's living in this crappy little room above a saloon on Washington Avenue and so worried about who might be after her. Mm -hmm. Duluth plays an important part of the story, doesn't it? Uh, Duluth and Superior. Uh, Duluth and Superior, yes. Um, it seems to be where she went when things got too hot in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Hmm. So from here, leaving the Twin Cities, this must have been one of the more challenging parts of the story for you, because she becomes much harder to track down. Yeah, because what happened next were, were there's some curious incidents where she was um, caught or accused of trying to abduct little children. Uh, in one case, it was from a uh, woman that she was boarding with in Minneapolis. And in another case, it was when she uh, was up in Duluth and was staying at a, a home for young women up there and uh, walked away with uh, one of the wards. <sighs> and, and what happened to her and the ward? Well, um, apparently she did not get very far. Um, the newspapers thought that she was trying to get a child in order to blackmail one of her former lovers so that that former lover would would give her money uh, to support her. As we go through the to the end of her story, uh, where I sort of can piece together some of her early life, I think there might have been more to it than a blackmail attempt. Uh, I think that she had lost her own child. Interesting. And how old was she at this point? She was uh, 18, 19. Wow. Uh, this persona she creates for herself, it's so unique. It's not just the incident in the Dakotas where she dresses like a man either. She, she's found on numerous occasions by police and seen by other witnesses, uh, driving wagons um, from saloon to saloon, dressed like a man. and Yeah, it, uh, she was either wearing men's clothing, which was against the law uh, at, at that point, or she was wearing her underwear. <laughs> and she would get arrested 
and she'd have to go to court and defend herself. Yeah, and there was one uh, <laughs> there's one anecdote where um she was captured uh walking around in her underwear and um had to go to court and so one of the court officers um told her to put on her duster and she said no, I know what happens if I put on men's clothing. <laughs> and that same court employee who wanted her to wear clothes, he he came up with a solution. He found a police officer to escort her into the courtroom instead of him. Yes. <laughs> he was too embarrassed. <laughs> he was too embarrassed to walk into the courtroom with her. <laughs> How long does she stay in the Twin Cities? Well, she stays in Minnesota for about... Three, three to four years, but she bounces uh, between Minneapolis, St. Paul, and also spends time in Duluth. And she has an interesting little escapade in Stillwater as well. Yes, um, she at one point she teamed up with a new boyfriend. I forget his name now, but he uh, she convinces him that um, they can recreate her adventures in the Dakotas and go and rustle up some horses over there. And so they get into trouble. He had been in trouble before in a as misadventure as a counterfeiter. And so they get into trouble and try to cool off in Stillwater um, and get arrested there and are told to leave town. It's near this time, isn't it, that she stops going by the last name King uh, because she is having trouble with her aforementioned husband, John King, who doesn't want her using his name anymore. Yeah, uh, and she devises a whole series of um, identities. Um, Della Carlos, Vic Del Rey, um, Nell, Nellie Gordon uh, was another one. And in each case, she invented a backstory uh, to go along with it. Um, one of her last adventures in Minneapolis was where she pretended to be a schoolgirl and uh, seduced a young man um, who was married and planned to elope with him um, until their secret was discovered. <laughs> he was actually living in an area we call Northeast here in Minneapolis. And she builds quite the track record of seducing men. Yes. She always seemed to be looking for someone to support her. But, of course, she was so impulsive that she could never settle down and have a stable life with, with anyone that she met. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And one of the more intriguing relationships she has is with her doctor, right? Who, who tends to a wound that she receives? Yes. In one of her forays up to the Duluth Superior area, she was in a dance hall in Superior, a dive, and there was a fight there and bullets started to fly and she was shot, uh, shot in the chest. And so she was taken to the hospital, and she was treated there by Dr. Rene, who happened to be the commissioner of health for uh, Superior. He was a French-Canadian professionally trained doctor, one of the few professionally trained doctors, uh, you know, in the country at that in that part of the country at the time. So um, he was young, he was uh, attractive, and. Apparently, uh, he nursed her back to health, and they started a relationship. So what happens next with them? Well, um, she, she tried living with Dr. Rene, and they set up a house together, and apparently she started ordering things without his knowledge, like a piano, again, because she was impulsive. And so uh, they had a falling out, and... It was that at that time where she decided to leave Minnesota. And for a long time, I was not able to track her beyond that point. What were the research methods that you used to track her after this? Well, uh, this was about 1892 that she left the the area, and I lost track of her. But I, I did extend my search for clippings into further years and found a, an article in the uh, Minneapolis and, and in the St. Paul newspaper from 1898, where a convict, an ex-convict uh, in Colorado was writing to the papers trying to find his ex-wife, who went by the name Nellie King, Um, who said that she was from uh, Minneapolis. And so um, that gave me the clue of his name. And from his name, I was able to backtrack his movements for the previous few years, uh, where it was pretty uh, clear that um, he and Nellie had been traveling the country from... Gainesville, Florida, to Kansas City, to Denver. And this was a man named Frank Han. Frank Han, although he um, also went by um, an alias Frank Probasco, which was his uh, middle name. And he was an interesting character. He had uh, he was uh, raised in New Jersey. He was a grocery store clerk and was accused of stealing money from um, the place where he worked. So he fled New Jersey and went south to Florida. And at some point uh, along the way, 
um, he met uh, Nellie King, and they both went to Gainesville, Florida together. They were both at that point also morphine addicts, and they were probably supporting one another's addictions. So I'd like to to pause for a moment and and have you talk about Nellie's psychological issues, as best you can, of course. I I know you're not trained to (laughs) diagnose someone's mental condition, uh, nor am I. But also her addiction to drugs and and her suicide attempts um, as well. Yeah, she made several attempts using uh, laudanum, which was a a liquid uh, derivative of opium. And it was available without prescription, uh, as as everything was, at, at drugstores. And so um, there were several incidents in, in Minnesota where she attempted suicide. And it seems to be in every case she was doing that in order to uh, create some drama involving the her current uh, boyfriend. One of the scenes in your book that I, re- I remember most vividly, she goes into a drugstore to get a vial of laudanum. And a typical dose uh, is like a drop or two at most, right? And after she came out, she sat in the front of the buggy and she sends her boyfriend back in to ask for the dosage. What, what, yeah, they ask, uh, he asked the druggist, what's the correct dose? And the druggist says, you know, a few drops. And they turn around and look through the glass at the front of the store to see Nellie outside in the carriage swigging from the bottle. <laughs> and she timed it so just as they look at her, she drinks it. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and then she slips into unconsciousness and they need to get something to empty her stomach. Yes, and um, she had probably done that on top of, uh, on top of uh, alcohol. So um, there is another, uh, it might be the same incident where they had to keep her in a hospital because she had uh, delirium symptoms, a, a, a serious case, which is, you usually don't see that in someone so young. She's not only addicted to morphine, but also uh, cocaine, right? Um, the cocaine, the earliest example of cocaine, uh, I, I don't find that until the very end of her life. And, okay. Um, when she was in Minnesota, it was laudanum, which is uh, opium, and morphine. And I think I thought there was another reference that didn't make it into the book where she was found smoking opium. Can you summarize her her time on the road with Frank Han? Well, she and Frank Han were were both singers, and uh, I think that they tried to earn their living in you know sort of third rate uh, music music uh, venues, dance halls, um, as they went around the country. They did set up shop for a while in Gainesville, Florida. Because Frank had gone to Florida thinking that he would volunteer for helping the revolutionaries in Cuba. And, of course, the, the, the Cubans really did not want any Americans coming over to help in the rebellion. Um, this was a few years before the Spanish-American War, but there was certainly um, some strong uh, resentment among uh, Cubans against the uh, Spaniards uh, that were governing them. Um, so that's why Frank uh, had headed towards Florida. Of course, he once he teamed up with Nellie, um, his plans changed. But he wrote back to New Jersey that um, a fake letter describing his heroics in, in Cuba. And this fake letter um, was taken by the people that he sent it to in New Jersey and was published and that letter was reprinted around the nation and sort of made him a minor celebrity and created this demand for send us more news from Cuba. And so um, he set up this sort of cottage industry while he was in Gainesville where he pretended to print these uh, dispatches from Cuba uh, describing 
the um, actions of the revolutionaries there. And what was his motivation for all of this? Um, I think he was being uh, given some uh, sidepens for each one of these letters that he produced. He was making a real name for one of the acquaintances they had in Gainesville, who was a young newspaper man down there, who took these letters and was able to syndicate them and send them all over the country. How did he get caught? Well, um, some real uh, Cuban emigres started to notice that several of the things that uh, Frank was writing in his letters were not true. There were incorrect place names. There were um, made-up Spanish names uh, or Spanish-sounding names that weren't really Spanish names at all. And no one could verify any of the actions that he seemed to be describing. Do we have any idea of, of how they met? Do you think it was this this mutual love of singing? I, I yeah, I don't know how they connected, but I do believe that she was performing in a Gainesville uh, musical venue while they were there. Um, actually, I think she was acting in a uh, play called Trilby, which was very famous at that time. Which is funny because Trilby involves a uh, a young uh, woman who dresses uh, in men's clothing. <laughs> Did you ever get the sense that she had to fall back on prostitution to survive? Well, um, I think there is evidence that when she was in Minneapolis that she was staying in one of the First Street South uh, bordellos. But I think she was there as um, the parlor entertainment, which would take place on the ground floor. And she was probably more valuable to the madam running the place for her singing than she would have been in the upstairs room. Right, right. So she and her new boyfriend, Frank, they get married, right? Well, it, it's it's probably a, a a civil marriage. There's no evidence that um, you know they ever got formally married. And she'd been married multiple times already, right? At least two or three. Well, she said that that uh, <laughs> she she probably had you know uh, maybe a half dozen marriages before that time, but. There's no evidence that any of them were ever officially licensed or, 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 or overseen. How did they make their way to Colorado? Well, after the uh, deception over his Cuban letters was discovered, they had to leave Florida uh, fairly quickly. And uh, apparently they were heading west because they thought that they could start a new life out in the western states. And so they they go to uh, Denver and they are flat broke and have to resort to shoplifting and, of course, are caught. You point out in your book that they are a couple of grifters, but when they head into Colorado, they're like walking into a den of grifters that are far griftier than they are. Oh, uh, Denver at that time was probably the uh, headquarters of all uh, con men in America. <laughs> I think Bob Ford, after killing Jesse James, was, was trying to pull some cons in Denver around this time. Um, yeah, and it, it, you talk about city corruption. I mean, it, there there's ample evidence that the... Uh, city government there was in total cahoots with all the the, the con men in town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so they really don't do well there. Yeah, the, um, they're, they're caught shoplifting. Uh, they are released on bail. They're, they're, they try shoplifting again or, or um, now he tries forging a check, altering his paycheck. And so they're sought, and they try to escape um, and are tracked down by the Denver uh, detectives um, as they, they try to flee south to, to Mexico. 
And um, Frank is thrown into the Colorado State Prison. And uh, Nellie goes to live in the town for a while to, to wait for his release, but then tires of that and um, decides to head back east um, and goes to Kansas City where she runs out of money and um, meets up with an old friend, an old acquaintance, apparently. And Frank Hahn, he was the one that wrote to the Minneapolis papers to, to bring it around again. Yeah, after he gets out of jail, which is not until 1897, uh, uh, 1898, um, he writes to uh, the, the Minneapolis and St. Paul newspapers trying to find Nellie because he's lost track of her. And and actually, at that moment, she's spending her last days, it turns out, in uh, Kansas City. And she's actually taken in by someone who she knew. She's taken in uh, by an old newspaper man named Mark Cromwell. And uh, she apparently had seen him in a bar uh, that she wandered into in Kansas City. And she recognized him and went up to him and, and said, don't you recognize me? And uh, Mark Cromwell did not. And she said, I'm, I'm your little Leon. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> when, I, when I came across the, the article that mentioned uh, this, uh, I, I was dumbstruck. This is the first evidence now I have of Nellie's early life before she uh, came to, to, to Minnesota. She apparently had been a performer named uh, that went by a state name of Little Leon. And she would dress up, assumably, in, in little boy's clothes? Well, um, yes. Now, uh, Leon was a stage name that was very common at that time, used by um, acrobats and trapeze artists. And most of them were young children because they had better balance. So apparently she had, um, at an early age, been a performer in a show, a road show that had been produced uh, by this Mark Cromwell that she met in Kansas City. Well, what a coincidence, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, he did uh, finally recognize her and helped her out and took her into his house and nursed her you know, back to, to some sort of health. But uh, she fell back into her bad habits and sought out drugs again and went in search of uh, morphine and uh, was given some, something on the street and apparently it was not morphine, it was cocaine, and she OD'd and fell down dead. How old was she, do you think, when she died? She was, um, I think she was about uh, 29 or 30 at that, that point. So once you've told her story, then you next explain how you discover her real identity. And you probably could teach a master class in genealogy. It's pretty impressive how you discover this information. Well, well, you know, backtracking from all the clues that I had, I was able to identify her sister and her mother, who actually were living in Minneapolis at that point. But I was only able to do that by, by going through and, and tracking down some marriage records uh, that have parents' names and comparing them uh, against, you know, uh, uh, other information that I had. So I was finally able to identify who I, the family that I thought she belonged to, but the only problem was the family that I uh, thought she belonged to had um, three children, two of which were uh, women, um, and I knew their whereabouts because I had traced them, and one uh, boy uh, who had been noted in the census named Frank. And so, uh, finally, I was able to determine that 
her first name really was Fanny uh, in one document. So um, I'm pretty sure that she was really a Francois or Francine. And so she had been misidentified in the census as Frank, thus beginning her gender confusion. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And you also learned that she was an actual child performer. She wasn't lying about that. And we hear a lot these days about child stars who can't handle that kind of life and do things like drugs. Well, um, I believe that she had been part of this uh, third-rate traveling show with Mark Cromwell and had fallen in love with one of her fellow performers, a piano player, because I was able to find her first real marriage, one that was recorded, and was able to identify who the husband was and... um, so what I suspect happened was that they got married. He ran out on her. Um, she became pregnant, and she either lost her child or gave it away. And that is why she was obsessed all during the time that she was in Minnesota about taking other people's children. <sighs> How old do you think she was when she got married? the first go go around um 16 or 17 she packed a lot in uh during her short life uh, she certainly did and you know even with her behavior and her addictions she must have had a lot of charisma yeah without question you have not yet been able to find a photograph of her right no No, I'm not sure that one exists, but um, I would love to see one. Now, um, I have sold the movie and television uh, rights to the story. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, well, uh, you know, 95% of the time, they they never come to anything. But I was asked, well, who who would you envision in this role? And um, my, my face first answer, and I think I would still stand by it, would be someone like Miley Cyrus. Huh. Young, attractive, has a beautiful voice, and also seems very impulsive. (laughs) You definitely hit the nail on the head with that one. (laughs) I think she's described in the book as uh, short. Yep, short, short, uh, blonde, or or, uh, auburn hair. Yeah, I think you're right that she had auburn hair and colored it blonde. I guess there are so many ways your imagination can go with what she looked like. I guess that's part of what makes it fun. And and probably, yes, uh, people reading about her probably will imagine her. And that that sort of ties into how I conclude the book because – the the, the the final chapter, you know, I didn't want to leave it with she fell dead on the street in, in Kansas City. As it happens, and I don't know whether he realized that she was um, had ended this way or not, but in 1899, a year after her death, Dr. Rene up in Superior, um, who was a also an amateur writer, published a book of short stories, and there was one long uh, story in his book that was a thinly veiled autobiography of his life, and it tells about his encounter um, and falling in love with this woman that he names in the story as Nellie King. Wow. And in the story, he makes her into this almost angelic uh, figure who at the end of uh, the story that he wrote um, gives up uh, material life and becomes a nun, <laughs> which is not how the real Nellie King ended. But this is, this is how he idealized her. What a perfect ending to a book and what a stroke of luck in finding that. Well, once I found that, I knew I had to write the book because, um, you know, 
no one that read Dr. Rene's book uh, probably realized that what was uh, what was behind it, and and so yeah, I, it's just something I had to to get out. And that book is really obscure now. I mean, you're you're probably one of the only living people who's ever even read it. Um, I only found it on uh, microfilm. I have not found a hard copy of it yet. Wow, what a find. So this book is available in bookstores in the Twin Cities for sure. I've seen it myself. And online, of course. Where can people go to get more information about you and your book? Well, I do have a, a website, jerrykuntz.org. It's all all run together, one word, Jerry Kuntz. Where you know I, I post things about the, uh, what I'm currently working on. I did publish a, a book earlier this year, um, available on Amazon, called The Writing Master, which is um, uh, several episodes uh, of that take place in Minnesota, or, or um, much of it uh, involves Fargo, um, which is the true story of a um, criminal mastermind of the 19th century. Huh. Some of my listeners might find it interesting that you are actually a New Yorker writing about Minnesota. Have you been here to visit some of the places that you write about in your book? Yes. Uh, I, I've been to Minneapolis a couple of times, but I haven't uh, been there since I wrote the uh, book and have had time to e explore some of the, the sites. I, I would really be interested to see what the First Street South looks like right now. Well, great chatting with you, Jerry. Thank you so much again for your time. All right. Bye-bye, Eric. Again, I've been speaking to Jerry Koontz, the author of Minnesota's Notorious Nellie King, Wild Woman of the Closed Frontier. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Until next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.